before we get started, I have to tell you something very important. We're coming to San Francisco and we're coming to Seattle. We're going to do some live shows there on May 10th. We'll be at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. And on May 12th, that is two days later, we'll be at the Neptune Theater in Seattle. This is really happening. It's us coming to see you. You can check the full schedule of shows and buy tickets and do all that stuff at ttfa.org slash events. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Marketplace. (laughs) Sorry, no everyone hates when I make jokes. Um, I'm Nora McInerney. This is terrible. Thanks for asking. I am a person who loves jokes and rules. I love rules. I love knowing what I'm supposed to do or not do so that then I can do the right thing and get an A-plus or a gold star or whatever the equivalent is when you're an adult. I think it's just likes on Twitter. (laughs) Rules give me comfort in a world of chaos, and they do that for a lot of people. Some people get their rules from religion. They're raised in a faith, and their faith is what tells them what's right and wrong and what to do. I don't, faith is often, for a lot of people, what gives them a sense of belonging. It tells people who's in, and depending on the faith or the microcosm of the faith that people are raised in, it tells them who's out. And faithful is how Patricia grew up. She was in. I was one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's funny that I don't say I was a Jehovah's Witness because we were supposed to be part of a whole group. We weren't supposed to be really set apart as individuals, so we would always say I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses. My familiarity with Jehovah's Witnesses is limited. I know their most famous member, Prince, not personally, but, you know, the way all Minnesotans do, where he's like a friend's second cousin. Literally everyone in Minnesota believes that they know somebody who is related to Prince. Side note. Anyway, so I know of Jehovah's Witnesses primarily through Prince and also through their magazine, The Watchtower, which I always accept when it's handed to me because I have a hard time saying no to people. And I know them also because they sometimes come to our door. And it is also hard for me not to let them into my house because every it's, it's just very hard. So I obviously didn't know much, and Patricia was kind enough to give me a quick education on what being one of Jehovah's Witnesses meant to her as a child. Jehovah is God. Jesus is God's son. They're not part of a trinity. We're the only religion that has the truth. So we're the only religion that has God's blessing. And our job is to preach to everyone else on the earth in order to both save ourselves by preaching to them and also to hopefully get some of them to not be destroyed at Armageddon. So if you happen to die before Armageddon, then your collective deeds are written in a book, so to speak, in God's memory. And if if you did more good things or more things that made you worth being resurrected, basically. Um, If you didn't do anything unforgivable, like speak out against the religion, if you did what you were supposed to, then you got resurrected. The promise of Armageddon, not the Ben Affleck blockbuster, although that was excellent, but the fiery end of the world as we know it, 
the Armageddon that sets up the Eden that's coming next where true believers live, that was ever present for Patricia. She didn't know when Armageddon was coming, just that it was coming. Armageddon is going to come any day now. And when it did, the good witnesses would be saved and everyone else dies. And I I should say this, that the experience of growing up with impending like destruction of your all your neighbors and everybody on the planet except for your religious group. It was really jarring because you had to be nice to people on the street and and you had to hold these two truths that like be polite to people on the street but also they're going to die. And when you're little, you do things like telling other kids at school you're going to die at Armageddon, <laughs> you know, because that's what you think, you know. I I just thought you should know you're going to be destroyed with your parents because you're not a witness. Quick disclaimer here, Patricia doesn't speak for all witnesses. She just speaks from her own experiences in her own church. And Patricia liked her church. She liked her life. Even if it was kind of scary, you know, with the promise of demons and Armageddon and hellfire, she was a witness. She was special. And she had special standards that she had to uphold. Things she had to keep from doing even when she was a child. Disobeying my parents, eating birthday cake. Oh, yeah, because witnesses don't celebrate birthdays or celebrate Christmas. Um, So when I was 11, it was very much like do good things, don't do bad things. Don't say bad words. Don't lie. Like I had a teacher who one time passed out Cracker Jacks to everybody. Um, This was in second grade, I think. And um, so we were all eating our Cracker Jacks and they were really, I mean, you know, who doesn't love a box of Cracker Jacks. And then like halfway through the box, she was like, so the reason why we're eating these is because it's my birthday, yay. And instantly I had to stop eating (laughs) the Cracker Jacks and put them down and Yeah, how did that um, feel? Like you were holding like just contraband? That that you were eating poison. Like instantly it was not okay to be eating those Cracker Jacks, even if I didn't know. Like now that I knew, I had to spit them out, put them away. And yeah, things like that kind of made her a weirdo in school. But again, it also kind of made her special. I got to be a little bit of a snot about it. But, you know, we were kind of taught that we were better than everybody else for doing that. So, you know, the only way to feel better when you really want the thing is to make the person who gave you the thing feel bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They forgot and gave you the thing. So, you know, you you develop like coping skills for... You know, making it through the world, being intensely different and, you know, dressing up and going to people's doors that you might be going to school with. And you might, like, knock on their door on a Saturday with your parents with a Bible in your hand. So the thing about rules is that there has to be a consequence when you break them. Otherwise, what was the point, right? And the consequences for breaking the rules in the world that Patricia grew up in, they were intense. The stakes were high. Amanda was my best friend, and she lived a a very short walk away from me in the small town where we grew up. And so I spent tons of time with her. I, I stayed over at her house. She would stay over at my house. And we we were about as close as kids could be. Patricia and Amanda were best friends, but they were also three years apart in age. So when Amanda is 15, Patricia is 12. 
I'm a very awkward middle schooler, and she's less awkward as a high schooler. There's a thing in their faith called disfellowshipping. And Patricia is fearful of this, even as a child, because it's not a joke. Which means once you're disfellowshipped that you are shunned. This big, scary thing, this disfellowshipping, this happens to Amanda, Patricia's best friend. And nobody tells Patricia what happened exactly. It's just that Amanda, who's 15 at the time, has done something, probably with a boy. Patricia has her suspicions. And now Amanda's dead, metaphorically. You have to stop treating them like they are a human being. Um, minimize eye contact. I mean, if you have to, like, if you're in a business and they walk in and need to buy something and you're forced to be the one who's helping them, then, you know, help them because it's your job. But don't go out of your way to treat them like a human. So Amanda didn't die, but she's dead to Patricia and to all witnesses and to God. Were you afraid for her? Resigned for her, more like. Because um, we were taught that whatever the person has done, they deserve what they get. And they, if Armageddon comes and they didn't repent, you know, they kind of deserve to die. Um, deep down, I was afraid for her. And I wanted her to, to just take the steps toward coming back. There were steps that you could take um, to come back, to, to get back in good standing, as they called it. As far as Patricia knows, Amanda did not take those steps. She never repented. She and her family disappeared from the faith. Patricia has no idea what happened to her after the disfellowshipping or where Amanda ended up. I was so heartbroken because I felt abandoned by her. I felt angry at her for having done whatever she did. And I felt heartbroken that I, I lost her. But I had to quickly control those feelings. And I got very good at controlling my, my feelings and kind of like holding them in. So I didn't react when I saw her. I didn't start crying when I saw her on the street and couldn't say anything to her. You know, I both had to watch out for if I ran into her. <laughs> make sure that I ignored her and didn't slip up and say hi. And also just remembered how, how important it was not to do whatever it was that she did. So in Patricia's world, if you're in, you get everlasting life. And if you're out, you burn. And before you burn, you lose your family and all your friends and all your support system. It's gone. Many religions leave space for doubts or encourage them. They believe that doubts are good. They make a stronger base for your faith. Patricia wasn't given the luxury of doubts. To her, doubts are bad and they're dangerous. But they crept in anyway. Because outside of her church, Patricia was a part of the world. She went to public school, and she was a high achiever. She took advanced placement courses. She was in the Future Business Leaders of America. She went to nationals for that, actually. 
But after that, it was like, oh, no, this is going too far. You need to kind of not be around so many non-witnesses. So I had to cut back on that. So, you know, there's like being a good student and having to kind of tamp that down because that is at odds with being a good witness. Um, and I, I knew that I couldn't go to college. So, you know, anything that I'm doing, you know, am I doing enough to get by and get good grades or am I am I trying to achieve so much that I'll be pressured into going to a college that I know I can't go to? The focus on prayer, preaching and faith at the sacrifice of education and career, is a major part of some Jehovah's Witness congregations. In Patricia's congregation, the main focus of a person's life was their piousness, not what they did for a living. There were a lot of janitorial business owners, waitresses, waiters, um, I guess servers would be the term. I worked in retail, and I was a server, and that was basically it. Um, anything that was low skill that you didn't have to go to school for and that you could kind of devote most of your mental energy towards the preaching work was was kind of the, the goal for Jehovah's Witnesses. So Patricia starts to focus more on her faith. She makes new friends who are more devout, who do a lot more of that door-to-door preaching. And that becomes Patricia's after-school activity. Her new friends keep her focused on her faith and not on her doubts. So when those doubts do creep in, Patricia shoves them down, explains them away, prays them away. Because if she didn't, that would be a sin, an unforgivable sin. And she stays true to her faith for a long time. But in her mid-twenties, Patricia started to feel burned out. She was still an ardent believer, but the rigor of it was getting to her. I just was having a hard time doing the day-to-day stuff, and I was dealing with some pretty severe, untreated anxiety and depression. Patricia had started to skip meetings. She wasn't going to service twice a week anymore. And then she stopped going altogether. At this point, she'd gotten a new job. She worked at a government office. And one day, she gets sent on a trip a couple hours away. It's just a day trip. It's a drive that she's taking with a coworker. The coworker knows that Patricia is a witness. And the coworker is kind of fascinated by it and wants to talk about it. Sort of. I was driving. My coworker um, had their phone out, and they were pulling up um, YouTube videos about um, atheism, and that really made me uncomfortable. But I didn't want to be rude, and so I was letting them kind of play some things, and nothing was sounding like it made any sense. Um, but then they asked me what I believe about the blood policy. And that is a policy that witnesses have that you should not accept blood transfusions, no matter what. They believe that that is tantamount to ingesting it, which the Bible forbids. So I, I told this much to my coworker, and they said, I could never 
let my baby die because I didn't give them a blood transfusion. That would be child abuse. And I just kind of stopped because you can't really say anything after that because that's, you know, what am I going to say? No, you should let your baby die, (laughs) you know? So that was the first time that I didn't have any defense for that or I didn't, I I did. I mean, it was a crappy one that I, I gave as a witness, but for the first time I had to just kind of stop and say, what am I saying? Am I telling, am I really telling someone that they should let their baby die if they need a blood transfusion? And so it stopped me from having that script that always ran in my head. And that was when the doubts kind of all started piling up because when you're going and going and everything's following you, you don't notice how much is following you until you stop and it all hits you from behind. And I started to think back on all these things that I had just accepted without ever thinking, what does this really mean? How does this make sense? You know, in the back of my mind, I was just thinking, whoa, 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 what just happened? Like, whoa, I don't believe it anymore. What? What? But I do believe it, but I don't. And, um, and it was terrifying, but it was exhilarating at the same time because for the first time I was going there, it's like 27, 28 years of just repressed doubts and, Things I was ignoring just all hit me at once. We will be right back after the break. Everyone cool with that? break starts in three, two, one, go. One, we're back. As you know, because you're listening to this podcast, there's someone else who's also back. We caught her in the hallway on our way to her secret office. I'm Samara Freemark. I am the senior producer of In the Dark. We are super excited because today uh, we dropped the first two episodes of season two of In the Dark. We kept the secret for more than a year. You really Uh, did. And I asked numerous times mm -hmm. and you were great at keeping a secret. Today I can say the season's about the case of a man named Curtis Flowers. He's a black man in Mississippi who in 1997 was convicted of the murder of four people in a local furniture store in this little town called Winona, Mississippi. He, he appealed his case and he won, but he didn't get out of prison. Instead, what happened was the prosecutor just tried him again. And then he appealed again. He won again. Prosecutor tried him again. And this went on and on. And this happened over and over again six times. So he has actually been tried six times for the same crime. And so we started looking into, like, how could this happen? And that question of, like, what is going on here? And that just led us all kinds of crazy places. We essentially moved to Mississippi for a year. It took that long to really tease out, like, what is going on in this case? The story is just weird and crazy and deeply troubling. All right. And the two, first two episodes are out today. 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 All right. So if I were you and I were listening to this, I would just stop this podcast, delete it, and then go and download In the Dark instead, the first two episodes. And just spend your time that way. If you can only listen to one podcast today, don't listen to ours. Patricia has just had a wrench thrown in the gears of her faith by a coworker and some YouTube videos, which probably wasn't her coworker's intention. 
Her coworker probably wasn't trying to instigate an existential crisis. But that's where Patricia is while driving down the road on a work trip. Give me a second. I need to process 28 years of being a witness and all of a sudden having that fall apart. Let me process this. Give me a second. So, yeah, I think I don't think they realized what they did. And I don't mean like, how dare they? I mean, I really don't think they realize what they led me to. And I don't think I realized how close I was to that point. I think I was always kind of teetering and trying to be so busy that I didn't think about it. When Patricia got in the car that morning, she had been one of Jehovah's Witnesses on her way to just a work trip with a coworker. A few hours later, as they arrive at their destination, who the heck is she now? I don't know. I'm not I, I'm not what I was, but I don't know what I I don't know what I am. And that was really scary. And my whole identity and my whole social structure and my whole family were wrapped around this thing that all of a sudden I had opened the Pandora's box of what else is out there. And I had to come to terms with the fact that this wasn't true and what should I do now? For a lot of people, myself included, the next logical step for what should I do now is to call your friends and your family and be like, the craziest thing just happened. My mind is blown. I need to process this with you. And by that, I mean, I'm going to be talking for 40 minutes and I just want you to nod and say, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and basically agree with me. But that's not an option for Patricia. Bringing up what has just happened on that car ride would be speaking out against her family, which is the same as speaking out against her faith. And the risk of that is too high. Even bringing up her doubts could result in her disfellowshipping, her losing her family and friends completely. So she keeps it to herself. She does whatever you do on a work trip. She goes back home, and she goes back to church for a couple more meetings. But it isn't the same. It was almost like I was looking at everybody, doing everything that I had been doing for my whole life. You know, singing these songs that were beautiful and emotional and listening to these talks at meeting that, you know, used to do it for me. They used to, like, give me chills because they were so powerful and motivating. And now it was just like, what language are you guys speaking? And... I felt like I was an anthropologist watching a a culture that I'd never seen before. It's a weird place to be, on the outside and on the inside at the same time. It's everything you know and are familiar with, but none of it feels right. A few months after that conversation in the car, Patricia's grandfather dies. And Patricia goes to his funeral. I missed having a firm feeling of what was going to happen. I missed that. I missed having a, a you know a strong family that we all were united in what we believed. And nobody knew. Um, I think they were starting to have suspicions that something was wrong, but they didn't know. Um, by design, they didn't know. I didn't want them to know. So I was pretty much completely alone 
in kind of feeling feeling this conflict and this pain and this grief on top of it all. Before you had these doubts, what did you think happened? Like, if you hadn't had doubts, you would go to your grandfather's funeral, and what would you believe was happening to him? It would still be sad, but I would believe that he will be resurrected after Armageddon, and and I'll be able to see him again. So without that... Your grandpa's funeral is what? It's just when you say goodbye forever. Patricia decides that the safest thing to do is to just ghost, just fade away. She doesn't need to announce her rejection of the faith to her family. She'll just move. She'll just go somewhere else, somewhere where she won't run into other witnesses who know her family, where she won't run into other congregants who could see her out on a date or sinning in other ways and then report back to her family and force them to disown her. Patricia moves five hours away, but she knows it isn't easy back home. Her mother knows that Patricia isn't going to meetings. I told her it was because of anxiety, because that wasn't a lie. <laughs> it just wasn't the full truth. And I, I felt like that would be a little easier than having the full conversation with her. This is not typical of witness parents, but she was actually very supportive of whatever I needed to do for my mental health and also very protective of me. So if anyone else asked what was going on, she kind of said, like, Patricia's an adult she can do what she wants and I don't really have those kinds of conversations with her so if you want to ask her yourself you're welcome to if anyone asked my mom at the same time Patricia is leaving behind the familiarity of her faith and her family she's also starting over she's 26 and she gets to reinvent herself and have a sort of delayed adolescence I realized how much of my personality was actually the religion and so I felt a little bit like I was um, I was just kind of a, an amoeba, like floating around without a structure or a shell that I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I kind of did different things and hung out with different people. And it's hard to be to be discovering yourself at a time when most people already have a pretty clear idea of their self and to be realizing what you both do and don't want to be. Five hours away from the watchful gaze of her congregation, Patricia starts to play catch up. She starts dating. She has her first kiss. She gets her first boyfriend. She has her first breakup. She starts making friends. Not friends that are based on just that forced proximity of who goes to your church, but friendships built on shared interests, which means she's got to get some interests. One of her first new friends is named Jennifer. She was very good at cultivating friendships, so she would have me over frequently. And, like, we started watching Game of Thrones together, and it was, you know, horrifying for me at the time, but... Um, I cannot she... think of a, <laughs> like, she couldn't have started you out with, like, some light 
you know, Dawson's Creek or something. <laughs> just, you went from Jehovah to Game of Thrones. Right. Like, whew. pretty much. Yeah. yeah. That's some, well, she was, I think she was trying to like, like really give shake me exposure therapy yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, success. So, yeah. yeah. But it was weird because I would, I would find myself just forgetting to keep in touch with her. And she would contact me and, and ask me if I was mad. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm fine. What's wrong? You know? Yeah. And, and she'd be like, well, I just haven't heard from you for two weeks. So what's going on? You know? And, and uh, I was like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't see your face, but I still need to like be a human with you. Just as Patricia is starting all this learning, and as she's just getting settled into her new life, she went home to visit her parents for a few days. And my dad was dealing with a persistent cough and fever and just kind of feeling crummy, and he looked really pale. And um, he, he went to the doctor and was diagnosed with bronchitis, and then he came home and took an um, antibiotic pack and did not get better. Patricia's mom finally convinces Patricia's dad to just go to the ER. And they left, and after a while, Patricia got a phone call from her mother. They forgot her dad's wallet, and they need Patricia to grab it and meet them in the ER. And my mom was standing there with tears in her eyes, and she said he has AML, and her eyes were filling up with tears. And, and I I looked at her... Um, and I just knew it was bad. And then she said it's acute myeloid leukemia. Acute myeloid leukemia is blood and bone marrow cancer. And it's hard to describe. You know, it's, it's scary enough when you hear AML or any kind of leukemia. But for Jehovah's Witnesses, it's, it's pretty much like saying he's going to die because can't get blood. You can't have a blood transfusion. And if it's far enough along, and if it's an acute, if it's an aggressive cancer, if it's something like that, that's pretty much all you can do is get blood transfusions and, and have that be a big part of the treatment. Patricia's dad is proud of his decision, even if it scares him, because he does know what his decision means. He was crying in the hospital in his gown on the bed um he he just looked very little under the gown uh, you know under the under the blanket in the gown and I think he knew I think he knew that this was it and I, th I think he even told my mom that and like when she said goodbye to him because she was going to drive up later um they said to each other this is it you know and I think that's what it meant was this is this is when he dies. The hospital he's at can't really do anything for him, so Patricia's dad had to be transferred to a larger hospital that's actually in Patricia's new city. Patricia's mother wanted her to ride along in the ambulance with her dad, and just before they set out, Patricia overheard a phone conversation. as between two witness elders who were coordinating this transfer. The two men were talking. 
And then I heard him respond, oh, yeah, his daughter's going with him. And the next thing he said was, oh, yeah, I think she's still in good standing. I think she's still, yeah, yeah, she's in good standing. And I realized that what that person was asking this elder was if I was still a good witness. As though that would somehow, if, if he said no, if that would mean that I wouldn't be able to ride with my dad in the ambulance. And so that, that was the first clue to me that this was, this was going to be like that. There was going to be someone checking on who was around my dad at all times to make sure that my dad was never with someone who could potentially jeopardize his spirituality by making him have a blood transfusion or by causing him to have a blood transfusion. Patricia eventually leaves in the ambulance with an EMT and with her dad. He was out of it. Um, I think he talked about being hungry. I don't think he realized how quickly things would happen. And I think it was going to be like kind of a prolonged thing in his mind. I didn't realize how quickly things would happen either. But no matter how quickly things were happening, her father was vocal about not getting any blood transfusions. He told everyone repeatedly, even the woman who came in to empty his trash basket, and his oncologist respected his decision, but she outlined to him and to his family what it meant. Without a blood transfusion, we're looking at probably a week, maybe more. And, you know, she did say there's a chance that you could have chemo, but your blood count is so low that we need to get it up to a certain point before you can even have chemo. And then that could lead to a very, a very traumatic last few days. Or if you don't have chemo, you could have a much more comfortable last few days. Patricia's dad did try chemotherapy for two days, but it made him feel even more sick. So they stopped. And that was really it. That was when we really knew this was going to be watching him die. How does it feel to know that there's something that could be done and that he's just not going to do it? Horrible. It's like it's like watching someone drown and having the life preserver and knowing that they they will they will think that you're attacking them if you throw it to them. So I made the decision not to say anything to him or not to try to persuade him because I felt like if if he hears that from me right now, what he's going to think is that I am being used by Satan to tempt him or to sway him when he's at his weakest. And I didn't want him to have that as the last few days of, of memory of me. So Patricia's dad had his survival within reach. But he wouldn't take it because it would cost him eternal life. Nine days pass. I remember he was pale. He looked almost see-through. And um, all of the aunts and uncles, all of my dad's siblings came and 
the uncle who I was closest to. Um, he and I, I remember at one point, stood in the room with my dad and sang to him because my dad was really loved music. And my dad corrected our 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 tuning because we were slightly flat. <laughs> and I think he corrected the lyrics, too. So it was just it was really funny. Um, like, don't ruin my deathbed. With yeah. Your, like, get to the right key, wherever. It, it makes sense. I mean, you you don't want the last singing you hear to be off key. That would be horrible. <laughs> yeah. He's making good points here. <laughs> so there were these moments of just humor, and then there was these moments of heartbreak in, in between it. And what was really hard, um, it was hard on everybody. I mean, I don't think anybody was having an easy time of it, but I think... Everybody else in my family could frame it in a way that that made them feel a little better about what was happening because they saw it as my dad keeping his integrity. And that was a big phrase that they like to use in that religion. He was keeping his integrity. He was staying faithful until the end. And to them, they could look at the fact that my dad was dying of leukemia over a period of nine days as a faith-strengthening example. I was having a completely different loss right next to them, and they had no idea. And I couldn't even tell them, because if they knew, then that would be its own set of problems. So I felt completely alone around a bunch of people who were all experiencing the same thing. Um, so while they were... They were looking at my dad and, and talking with him and saying, you know, soon we'll be able to build a treehouse and pet the pandas and, you know, you'll get to learn the piano, you'll get to learn all the languages you never got to learn, we'll be able to travel, you know, all these things that witnesses look at for the future, for the after resurrection, after the paradise is started. They, they were looking forward and I was just looking at that, that's it. He's going to be dead forever. Patricia's dad dies. Her mom and her siblings are looking forward to petting some pandas with him someday, but Patricia can't look forward to that. She's in mourning for the dad who just died, for the comfort of a religion that she used to have. She has to mourn that a faith she rejected is sitting between her and the people she loves the most, preventing her from really connecting with them, from sharing her pain with them. Patricia's there in a room with her family, but she's alone in her grief and in her loneliness. And Hans and I had a long conversation about whether you can be alone in your loneliness. And I said yes. Look, Patricia's alone in her loneliness, and eventually, she's going to be alone in her joys, too. Because the revelation that Patricia had, that revelation that brought her into a life that feels full and happy and true to her, it also brought her to a place where her family can't really know her. To a place where the closest she can be to her family still casts this vast, invisible separation between them. It's as if they're speaking to one another from behind thick panes of glass. So what's worse? 
to have her family at this distance or to not have them at all. I think a lot of people just have very separate lives from their families. And um, and then the people who rip off the Band-Aid and are very open about everything with their family, often it leads to a lot more direct confrontation and shunning, but they also find out if anyone in their family would you know, go against the religion's rules and keep in touch with them. So I I almost think sometimes that by kind of fading out the way I did, by accident almost, just trying to minimize the harm that, you know, leaving with a grand gesture would cause, I think that I've sacrificed being able to be super open with my family. Patricia, by the way, is not her real name. And she's telling us this, all of this, knowing that, of course, there's a chance that her family or someone who knows her family might hear it. Why would she do that? I mean, why wouldn't she? We all hold a part of ourselves that's unknowable to even the people who are closest to us, but we all want all of us, for the people we love to see us as best they can and to love us regardless. And if they don't, or won't, or can't, we want for someone, even strangers, to take their place. Maybe not to approve of everything we do, but at the very least, to witness it. This has been Terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm Nora McInerney. Our senior producer is Hans Butow. Munoshe Khomar is our intern. Hannah Meekock-Ross is our project manager and a very good friend and a, a good listener in general, but also of this podcast. Tracy Mumford provided many insightful comments on this episode. Thank you, Tracy. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson. You can find him at Joffrey Lamar Wilson. It's Joffrey with a G. Joffrey, I mean, his the website is Joffrey Lamar Wilson. Side note, it's Joffrey with a G. The website is not Joffrey with a G Wilson. <laughs> You'll find him. We are from from American Public Media. We're part of. We are one of America's public media. <laughs> We are from American Public Media, APM.